15 love, 30 love, 40 love, game. Tennis without Rafa won't be the same. Hey everybody, I'm Jimmy Dale and this is the pilot episode of Triple Break Point, a podcast for tennis fans. This episode was supposed to feature a co-host and a breakdown of a classic tennis match, but as a fan, how can I possibly not dedicate this pilot episode to Rafael Nadal and La Decima? This 10th title at Roland Garros truly represents one of the greatest achievements in the history of sport. I feel privileged to have watched Rafael Nadal's career unfold. He is my favorite player on the tour. He exemplifies many of the things which I love about the game and about what the game can do for human character. And like Agassi, like Serena, like Ivanisevic, like Navratilova, Nadal provided us with a journey through tennis, a trek. I don't feel that I'm overstepping any boundary in calling it an epic quest. I first became aware of Nadal when he was probably 17, right, gifted kid at Wimbledon. I watched him on tour for a year and a half, and of course it's at this point that my real memories of him begin. Rafa Nadal got into the French Open at 19 years old and won it. His first time in it, his first time in any major, he won it. And he didn't just win it. He beat Roger Federer in the semifinals and had actually come into his first French Open as a favorite, having utterly dominated the entire clay court season, scooping up titles like ice cream. In one season, he had become the king of clay, almost as though Guga and Borg had never existed. And, by the way, in his first match at Roland Garros, because he had enjoyed such a successful season leading up to it, Rafa broke the record for most consecutive wins on clay, first match at a major. I believe that record had been held for 30 years. However, when he moved into grass court season, he took some hard losses. He made early exits at both Jerry Weber and Wimbledon. But the way I remember it and the way I feel about it now... The result of those two losses would define Rafa as a player just as much as that first Roland Garros win. He went on this incredible tear, just mowing down opponents, right? He charged through people, providing just an amazing streak of great matches to watch. And remember, he was still just a kid, wearing those damn pants, right? (laughs) And the headband. I can't really describe to you the joy which I used to take in watching this young ball of energy just explode into motion on the court before a match would even start. The bigger the match, the bigger the release. I miss the days when he would leave 40 footprints inside the baseline at Roland Garros before the warm-up began. Okay, his hardcourt season that first year did culminate with an early exit from the U.S. Open, But I had already started to notice a few little things, and a few big things, about this Mallorcan tornado. I was a pretty happy tennis fan with a funny feeling in my belly. Nadal made a little bit of noise in Davis Cup and on the Masters Tour, too. And I guess by made a little noise, I mean I remember his reputation for just crushing people and being back in the locker room in no time. But people weren't really talking about him. My friends who knew about tennis weren't talking about him, and a lot of the on-air commentary was statistical. (laughs) Okay, this seemed strange to me. 
So the 2006 French Open rolls around and it's Nadal and Federer in the final. Rafa was really getting a very good opportunity to start cementing his legacy and across the net was Federer again. Nadal had to beat this guy again if he wanted to keep the title. Oh, oh, oh. And if Roger won, it was a career slam. Right, so would Fed slam today? Or would Nadal become the first player to beat him in a major final? Option number two. Vamos, Rafa! I'm sorry. I get a bit excited. Federer got his revenge at the Wimbledon final, but I didn't care. I already knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Rafa was going to be the first player since Borg to combo the French and Wimbledon. And he had just made it all the way to the final, where it took Federer to beat him. Um, we'll get around to the whole thing about my feelings on his ability to combo here in a minute. Okay. I, <laughs> I just had this great memory of some commentary. Uh, this was probably a couple of years into Rafa's career in the majors. I can't remember who the other commentators were, but there was this discussion about who had the best serve in the men's game, right? Was it Federer? Was it Safin? Was it Roddick? A few names were kicked around, and the general agreement was that it was Fed. And then Brad Gilbert, BG, chimed in and said that an argument could easily be made that Rafa was the best server in the game. And I remember a fair amount of the idea that Brad was out of his mind going across the table, right? And then he said, look at the percentages. And there was quite a bit of, um, oh, well, hmm, no, no, that's interesting, going across the table. For the record, I don't think Nadal had the best serve in the game. But it was an interesting point well made, and Rafa is a very good server, as he was then. The rest of 2006 wasn't the greatest for the Spanish guy, but bigger things were to come. El Toro, Rafa, comprendez-vous? A tsunami of a champion on la terre battue. So I'm going to enter in aside here and tie it into my main narrative. At this time, I had a very good friend who was a tennis pro at a country club. He told me on occasion that he felt I was an unusually insightful fan as did a few really knowledgeable people from the club. I can only offer that I did have a way of what seemed to be almost seeing into the future with respect to certain players. I really want to ensure that I don't seem to be boasting here. I can't imagine that these insights were that special, right? I'd just been watching the game my whole life. I think there were pros out there who would have agreed with my predictions, but I also understand why they seemed like such long shots, of course. Uh, the first player with whom my friend had ever seen me do this was Marat Safin. I will tell that story in another episode, but I expressed a particular couple of opinions or predictions about Safin. My friend told me I was out of my mind, and we watched these things happen on the TV in his living room. Okay, so I was a little bit surprised when in 2006 I said some things to him about Rafa and he assured me that I was out of my mind. The first thing I said was that Rafa was obviously going to be the next player to combo the French and Wimbledon. My buddy was like, what? And I was really surprised for a moment. I said, you don't see that? 
And I believe his response was actually, fuck no. My buddy thought Rafa was going to be a three French Opens guy. But I knew it was definitely going to happen. I just didn't know when. See, what I had been watching was Rafa's learning curve. And I had watched him closely in all of those Davis Cup and Masters matches and majors on different surfaces. I could see the adjustments he was making, and he didn't just make them from tournament to tournament. He made them from set to set. I had never seen a learning curve like it. Of course, this was a guy who didn't choose a grip until the serve was whistling toward him. I watched him change up his footwork, change up his approach, change up his mindset and geometry. After my buddy told me, fuck no, I looked at the floor and did some calculations in my head. I said, dude, Rafa's gonna slam. You're out of your mind. What are you talking about, dude? This guy, he's not gonna slam. I said, Rafa's gonna slam. It's going to happen. What? How can you say that? And then my buddy actually said, what makes you even think he's good? I just said, learning curve. And I was thinking, really? After the Safin thing? And the Federer-Nadal rivalry has been an express ride back to like McEnroe-Borg or McEnroe-Connors. The matches were that intense. The guys would get into these super long points or games that were like wars of attrition. It was like in one game, each player could go through the entire epic hero cycle. A really good example is set for Game 5 of the 2009 Australian Open. Take a look at that and see if you agree. Right. Fed was serving. There were many excellent drop shots and stab volleys down the line. After a little punch and counter punch, Fed went up two breaks. But Rafa the Raider just kept on coming. Fed was frustrated and started pulling all of that angry energy together and putting it into his shots, right? Rafa was firing off the most difficult shot in the sport like it was nothing, like a dog catching a ball. Fed was drop-shotting like Agassi, but with five times the aggression. At one point, Rafa kind of played Fed for a sucker and set him up so spectacularly that Fed almost made a right angle at a full run. He had to turn and, like, almost run in the shape of an L up the doubles alley and across the net. I think he returned the embarrassment with drop shots, though. Rafa was getting pissed. The point which set up break point number four was exemplative of unbridled, almost supernatural athleticism. Each of these guys is like Paganini. And then Fed erases it all with an ace. Seven deuces, 20 points, and Fed took the game. And history was always on the line at their finals, right? If Rafa wins this, he becomes the youngest ever. If Fed wins this one, he ties Sampras. If Rafa wins this one, he becomes the first since Wielander. And even going back to that French Open final, Federer had the chance to not just slam that day, but to become the first man since Rod Laver in 1969 to hold all four Grand Slam tournaments at once having won the preceding Wimbledon, U.S. Open, and Aussie Open titles. And he lost in the final against Rafael Nadal. The kid became known as a shot maker, but not just a shot maker. He wasn't just a guy who went out and came up with ten incredible mind-bending shots in a match. He was a top-level champion with that ability. Man, in that 2009 Aussie final, Federer 
would hit mind-blowing shots around the net post, and Rafa would just step up and take them like he was at practice. Right? Like he was out there with Uncle Tony hearing, okay, we're going to do this around the net post thing 200 times. Rafa had formerly held a partially legitimate reputation as a shot maker. He certainly was that. But was rounding out his game and the opinions of his detractors with a massive amount of new skill, technique, and physicality. Rafa was hitting the gym hard. There was now real power in his game, and even his second serves were starting to push opponents back. Around this time, I started noticing Rafa making this amazing forehand shot on a pretty regular basis. It was a looping low to high swing in which his left wrist would end up over his right ear. It put tremendous pace on the ball and was obviously difficult to return. I had seen other players use the shot in the past, but few and infrequently. Over the next couple of years, this developed into a signature Nadal shot. Playing a lefty was hard enough, but now guys had to face a lefty with that gun in the arsenal. I recall that there was some debate about whether Nadal was even left-handed, right? People were saying that he just played lefty. That, that wasn't really a big surprise, okay? There are people who play ambidextrously, people who serve righty and play lefty, and there's Fabrice Centoro. So it wouldn't really surprise me if Rafa is a right-handed dude who plays extraordinary lefty tennis. Hell, I didn't realize for 20 years that I tie my neckties lefty. So at the end of 2006, Rafa has two French Opens, right? In 2007, Rafa visited France with his uncle Tony. He spent some time meeting people and enjoying the culture. He got out a bit. He hit a few balls, had some great food, right? And then he said, yeah, I'll go ahead and take a third French Open while I'm here. And in 2008, Rafa said, I'll take a couple of majors, please. Oh, and while I'm at it, I'll grab the Olympic gold medal. Gracias. And as if he won two majors and the Olympic gold medal wasn't a powerful enough statement, there's this. He won his fourth French Open and he won Wimbledon. He hit the combo, baby. He had done it. The first man since Borg to combine the Roland Garros and Wimbledon titles. I think I almost broke the furniture. Oh, and he became number one in the world. Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Let's go, Rafa. So here comes 2009, right? Nadal shocks the world twice. He opened the year by pocketing the Australian Open title, which nobody saw coming. And then he lost the French Open final. True greatness was unfolding, though. This was totally apparent in Melbourne, and many people did consider the Roland Garros loss to be a fluke. However, any failure to congratulate Robin Soderling and appreciate his performance is sad. He went out there and won. So when 2010 opened, Rafa was no longer the number one player in the world, right? But he did face an opportunity to slam. In 2010, Rafa Nadal had the opportunity to achieve a career grand slam. The U.S. Open. Nadal versus Djokovic. What a match! Right? Would he do it? Would Rafael Nadal complete the Grand Slam today? Here it comes! Ah, oh, rain delay! 
a dramatic and contentious rain delay. But the boys got back onto the court eventually, and he took it. Nadal slammed in New York. Somebody call the paramedics for me. Nadal would end that year number one. And in 2011, he not only won his sixth French Open title, he comboed with Wimbledon again. Hello, Bjorn. My name's Rafa. <laughs> Nadal had comboed Roland Garros and Wimbledon again. Around this time, I predicted that Rafa would win nine Roland Garros titles. Most people didn't think I was right. In 2012, he won the French Open for the seventh time. In 2013, he won it again, and he won the U.S. Open again. Ended the year number one. In 2014, Nadal won that ninth French Open, but also struggled quite a bit with injury. And in 2015, he continued with his struggles, fell in form, and fell in the rankings. Right? 2016 comes around, and somehow, in the middle of all of these struggles, Rafa wins a 28th Masters title and a second Olympic gold medal. El Toro, right? And in 2017, his game has continued to intensify in physicality. Some people think there's room for comparison between tennis and boxing. Some say there is none. Well, I say there's room for comparison, and Rafa is like George Foreman. Just boom, 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 wearing opponents down, right? I would like to see Rafa and Serena form an exhibition mixed doubles team, okay? I used to take notes at some of the events I attended. Sometimes a televised match will unfold in a way that still makes me take notes today. Back in 2014, I watched Rafa run up against a kid named Nick Kyrgios in the first round at Wimbledon. Rafa went out that round. Here are a few of the notes which I took. Rafael can't muscle this guy off the court. What the heck is this guy's first serve percentage? Oh, it's like 100%. I think he may have exposed a weakness in Rafa's game. I noted the weakness, but I'm certainly not going to get into it here. So Kerio smashed Rafa in the first round at Wimbledon, but not Rafa at his best, right? Rafa had been falling off for some time due to those old tennis classics, injuries, and surgeries. I could go into all of this. I could detail each of the surgeries, each injury, the impact on his game, his on-court recovery arcs, but instead... I will just say that Rafael Nadal's career has been plagued by injuries and surgeries. It all presents an interesting postulation. Would Rafa be even greater, perhaps by far, if not for the afflictions, or did the problems inspire him to work harder, become greater, become a titan? It doesn't really matter. It is what it is, and he is a titan. Titans fall and come back. Most people thought Rafa's career was over during this period. I had doubts, but I certainly never gave up. And then there was a sign. Could the news be true? It seemed impossible. A second coach. 
someone down there on the practice court whispering in his ear in a voice that was not Uncle Tony's. Fortunately, it was Carlos Moya's. <laughs> Moya was a lifelong friend and had won the French Open. Maybe he really could help to right the ship. And then in 2017, after being coached by Moya for quite some time, Rafa goes on this amazing clay court streak, right? He wins everything. They might as well just start giving him the trophy at Monte Carlo, by the way. But wait, he didn't win Rome. Dominic Team beat him in the final. Do you know why Rafa lost to Team in Rome? Because earlier that day, Nadal was run over by a car. And when he finally managed to stand up, he was run over by a truck. It's the only possible explanation. I mean, I know his camp doesn't like to disclose injuries, but jeepers, it seems like somebody should speak up about a thing like that. Right? I am just kidding, Dominic. I've enjoyed watching you play, and I think you'll definitely make some noise. And in what tournament does clay court season culminate? Roland Garros, the French Open. Rafa had nine of them. And he came in as the favorite again, 11 years after his first win. You know, I don't even feel like discussing the whole draw. Rafa destroyed everyone and ran into Stan Wawrinka in the final. And then over him, in a ridiculously short final, Rafael Nadal won his 10th French Open. To see him stand... To see him standing up there on the dais with the crowd unfurling those banners for him sort of culminated my life as a tennis fan. I really do feel genuinely privileged to have watched this amazing arc and this gargantuan achievement. A slam and la decima. Um, wow. Somebody asked me where I think Rafa stands in the ranks of all-time great athletes, and my answer to that has to be entirely subjective and somewhat incomplete, right? I said, with La Decima, Nadal has surpassed Muhammad Ali on any list of mine. So, as of now, I still get to enjoy watching Rafa play. He just played a valiant Wimbledon going out to Mueller in an instant classic. We watched him write La Principia y ahora La Decima. I don't think he's done yet at all. If he doesn't retire or get injured first, Rafa will win an 11th Roland Garros title, maybe next year. And maybe in May of 2019, we will witness a champion seizing a 12th title at the same major. Vamos, Rafa! And that was the first edition of Triple Break Point. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope to be back soon with a co-host a breakdown of a classic match, and ongoing coverage of the current tour. Please feel free to contact me and let me know what you thought of this edition. You can reach me at triplebreakpoint at outlook.com.